Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In the United States, the 4th of July commemorates the birth of American independence and is celebrated throughout the country with spectacular fireworks, colorful parades, as well as family gatherings and barbecues. But for a woman named Robin Gardner, July 4th is a date that brings up a traumatic memory. On July 4th, 1990, Robin had been attacked by a man as she rode her bike. What Robin hadn't realized at the time was that she had narrowly escaped a fate that would later fall upon another innocent woman. She could never have imagined that the horrific experience would later help convict the same man of murder. Join me now as we shine a light into the darkness unearthing a history of twisted obsessions nurtured by a man who hid behind an ordinary facade. We'll explain how he progressed from fantasizing about hurting women to eventually actualizing his warped delusions. On July 4, 1990, Robin Gardner was out for a bike ride and headed towards Oak Openings Preserve Park in Ohio. While on her way, she passed a man driving a truck. She paid no attention to the vehicles that went by her on the road, but at some point, the truck that had passed her had turned around and began to follow her. As the truck approached her from behind, It started to slow down and suddenly bumped the back wheel of Robin's tire. The bumper's contact with the wheel caused Robin to fall off her bike and she landed in a nearby ditch. Before Robin realized what was happening, the man driving the pickup truck had exited his vehicle and quickly advanced towards her. 
He asked her if she was okay, but before she could answer, he struck her over the head and started dragging her over to his truck. Robin had briefly blacked out, and when she came to, she found the strange man attempting to handcuff her. She realized immediately that if she didn't act fast, the worst was about to happen. Robin began screaming as loud as she could, hoping someone would hear her, or perhaps expecting that her screams would startle the man enough that he would abandon whatever intentions he originally had for her. As Robin struggled to break free, the man managed to get one of her hands cuffed. In an incredibly daring but life-saving move, Robin managed to open the door and jump from the pickup truck. A passing motorcyclist happened to notice Robin and the man wrestling inside the truck. The motorcyclist helped Robin onto his bike and drove her straight home. The moment Robin got to the safety of her home, she collapsed and started hyperventilating before passing out. Robin's mom immediately called for an ambulance and the police. After Robin had regained consciousness, she started to recount to police what she'd just experienced. The police then drove Robin back to the location of her attempted kidnapping, and unbelievably, the man who had attacked her was still there. He was sitting inside his truck in the exact same spot where Robin had jumped. After identifying the man as the one who had tried to kidnap her, she was then taken to the hospital and police placed the man under arrest. The man's name was James Worley. As police questioned him, he immediately told them that Robin had cut him off with her bike while he was driving. He said when he stopped, Robin started an altercation with him. James claimed he had tried to place her in handcuffs in order to restrain her from fleeing before he could contact the police. Naturally, the police didn't believe his story and he was eventually charged with kidnapping and felonious assault. Robin had suffered a concussion, a skull fracture, and a multitude of cuts and bruises, but thankfully, Robin managed to escape with her life. Worley was indicted on the charges and eventually took an Alfred plea. An Alfred plea is where a defendant admits on record that they acknowledge that the state likely has enough evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they committed the crime in question, but the defendant still proclaims their innocence. The plea still results in a conviction to the defendant, but eliminates the need to put a victim through a court trial. In November 1990, James Worley was sent to prison by the Lucas County Common Police Court. In an attempt to be released early, he tried once more to blame the whole incident on Robin. Despite his obvious reluctance to assume any responsibility for his crime, James was released from prison on parole in December 1993. 
26 years later, James Worley made another attempt to kidnap a young female, but this time he had 26 whole years to think and plan about how he would do it differently. Sierra Joggin, a 20-year-old Toledo University student, was living in a quaint village called Menomora in Fulton County, Ohio. Growing up, she lived at her grandparents' home with her mother Sheila and her aunt Tara. Sierra's mother had been attending nursing school when she became pregnant, and so the extended family all helped out in raising Sierra. Sierra's aunt was 16 years old at the time and thought of Sierra as her baby doll. They affectionately called Sierra C for short. She always had such an amazing, outgoing personality. I mean, even as a baby, she was always smiling and just vibrant. She was fun to to take with us on vacations. I mean, she just was amazing. Even growing up, she wanted to be a part of everything. She wasn't one of those little kids that was shy or reserved. And I think that even became more obvious as she got older and in school. Always made friends and was always involved. Very mature and very responsible. She would have a million different things going on at once, but they would all be working very well together because she was very organized. She was all about the family getting together and traditions. She just was always organizing something. We did a mud run and a color run and she loved dressing up and it was always a theme or a party and she just always had all these wonderful ideas. When she was in high school, she was in volleyball and different intramural sports and then when she got into college, she was working, and then she was also in a a business fraternity, Alpha Kappa Psi, and along with taking a full study load and doing an internship and being part of a business fraternity, she was still able to make time for her boyfriend, make time for the family, and she was still able to go to my daughter's singing concert or her sister's t-ball game. She just was able to manage everything and, and make everybody feel like they were important. On July 19th, Sierra had been coordinating to take her younger cousins to see the Secret Life of Pets movie. Later on that day, she biked over to her boyfriend Josh's house. He was busy working away on a table in the garage and had been waiting for Sierra's cousin Nick to show up. After hanging out for a bit, Sierra decided to bike back home around 6.45 p.m. It was still light out, but Josh decided to ride beside Sierra on his motorcycle to make sure she got home all right. While following along, the two laughed and joked, and Josh even used his phone to make some video clips of Sierra as she rode her bike alongside him. At some point along the way, 
she told Josh he didn't need to continue on with her. She told him that she'd be fine going the rest of the way home by herself. Being the strong-willed young woman that Sierra was, Josh knew that it would be a losing battle to argue with her. Josh agreed, giving Sierra a kiss, and he said goodbye, not realizing it would be the last time he would see her alive. It was not long after the young lovers had gone their separate ways that Sierra encountered James Worley. A madman who had been conspiring and waiting for years for an opportunistic moment to execute his gruesome plan. A plan that would forever alter the course of so many lives. James Worley just happened to be riding along in his pickup truck at the same time Sierra was headed home. While James was driving, he spotted the young woman and knew this was his chance. They were on a secluded road and no one was around, surrounded only by farmer's fields. James approached Sierra's bike and bumped it, presumably in the same way he had Robin's. While she lay on the ground, completely defenseless, Worley took a motorcycle helmet from his pickup and struck Sierra on the back of her head. He then dragged her over to his truck and drove to his property that was nearby. Around 11 p.m. that same evening, Josh was texting Sierra, but she wasn't responding. That wasn't like Sierra. It was so unlike her that it troubled him enough to reach out to her grandmother and mother. Sierra's Aunt Tara recalls the sickening feeling she felt the moment she discovered her niece was missing. It was Tuesday night, and Nick, my son, had came home from being at Josh's, and it was about 10 o'clock, and I remember we were all sitting in the living room, and we had gotten a call from my mom, and she had said, have you guys heard from C? I said, no, I, I didn't, and my son said that Josh had seen her riding her bike, but that was it. My mom continued to say that they had all been trying to get a hold of her, and she didn't answer her phone. Sierra is extremely responsible. She would not not answer within a timely matter. And Josh had been trying to contact her for about an hour. At first, when Josh was calling, it rang and rang and rang, and then it just went to voicemail. So my sister immediately went up to the police station and reported what was happening. I remember the feeling immediately when they said they hadn't heard from her. Just the gut feeling of this isn't right because she wouldn't do this. And nobody had talked to her since she went on the bike ride. 
So my initial thought was, oh my gosh, maybe somebody hit her and they were scared and they they kept driving. I mean, that that's the only thing I could think. And so my husband and my son all went out to my parents' house, which my parents and my sister live right next to each other. And everybody started searching immediately. It was about an hour after that they had closed down the road that my parents and my sister live on. And there were helicopters circling. And that's when they found her bike. Around midnight, the family was notified that Sierra's bike had been found in a cornfield about three or four rows in. Near her bike, they also found one of her socks and a motorcycle helmet. Both had blood on them. They would not let us into the area because then it was crime scene. At that point, it became a full-on search. We had organized search parties that were meeting at my parents' house, and we had flyers. As the search for Sierra continued, a reward for $25,000 was offered. Sierra's family and the entire community was in total disbelief that anything like this could happen in their little tight-knit village. Growing up in the country, you hear these things and you always think, well, that doesn't happen out here. That doesn't happen where I grew up. And the whole time that this is happening, I kept thinking, well, there's got to be an explanation. I mean, this doesn't happen out here. But the gut feeling of the reality is she's not on her bike and there's blood and we can't find her. The reality of that was just horrible. On Wednesday, July 20th, the Federal Bureau of Investigation had become involved in the case. It had been about three days since Sierra went missing. The first 48 hours are always the most critical hours in an investigation, and to have the additional resources of the FBI was a tremendous benefit. It didn't take long for the villagers of Metamora to spring into action and help. The amount of support and people just coming to help and whatever they can do was amazing. Every day they showed up. Every day they were willing and ready to do whatever they could to bring her home. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sierra's family did whatever they could think of to get the word out about her disappearance. They held press conferences, reached out over social media, billboards on trucks, and plastered posters all over. But as the search for Sierra continued, the possibilities of what may have happened to her started to race through their minds. We live in an area that has been known to be high for human trafficking. So obviously, once we found her bike and she wasn't around it, the horror thoughts of her being abducted and put into trafficking was just absolutely debilitating. And how would we be able to find her? Sierra's family became hopeful that she may have been found alive when a police officer from Detroit contacted the Fulton County Police about a woman who had been brought into a local hospital. There was an unidentifiable woman who jumped out of a car and she had broken her leg and was beaten and they hadn't been able to identify her yet because she was in the hospital. And to just have that moment to pray, like, I hope, I hope it's her. I hope, you know, because she's alive. It was a crushing moment when they discovered that the woman found wasn't Sierra. But they refused to give up hope that they would find her. They extended their search to neighboring states, calling around to hospitals to see if they had any patients that matched Sierra's description. As FBI agents canvassed the farmer's field near where Sierra's bike was found, they came across the property that belonged to James Worley. It was located approximately two miles away from where her bike was found. When he answered the door to investigators, James immediately blurted out, I didn't steal nothing or kill nobody. Naturally, this struck detectives as an odd statement to make, so they asked James to accompany them to the police station for some further questioning. Sierra's family knew that time was against them. They were fully aware that with each passing day, the possibilities of finding Sierra were becoming grimmer. Deep down inside, we were thinking it's been one day, one day that she's either out there alone or with someone. And then it's two days and you're like, okay, so two days isn't good. When it gets to two days, you, you start to really question everything. Meanwhile, authorities were becoming quickly aware of Worley's previous run-in with the law after they brought him in for questioning. Very early on, James told investigators that he'd lost his motorcycle helmet, some fuses, sunglasses, and a screwdriver in the location where his motorcycle had previously broken down. This was notable because some of the items he mentioned were located near Sierra's bike. By this point, police were extremely suspicious and rushed to get a search warrant for James Worley's property. 
James didn't live alone. Also living at the farm was his ailing mother and his brother Mark, who suffered from mental health issues. James never had much luck holding a job, which granted him the ability to be at home and care for his mother and brother. The property, which spread across three acres of land, consisted of a house, two barns, and a pond. The search warrant was executed in Worley's presence, and by 2.15 p.m. that afternoon, police were giving a press conference indicating that James Worley had been arrested in conjunction with the disappearance of Sierra Joggin. Police were vague with details, not initially saying why they suspected James, especially since her body had not yet been recovered. While the search warrant was being conducted, police came across copious amounts of items that were cause for concern. In one barn, they located an air mattress, bags of women's lingerie, sex toys, bondage restraints, duct tape, rubber gloves, a clothesline, and numerous blood-stained paper towels. In another barn, police found a green bin. Before opening it, Willie became noticeably upset and requested for the police to stop searching. But they continued... Inside the bin, they located adult diapers, white tube socks, a lacy top, and ball gags. The barn of horrors reeked of decomposition and cleaning solution. As police continued searching, they located a deep freezer. It was hidden beneath some floorboards covered with bales of hay. Inside, the freezer was lined with carpet and restraints. It was wet and had a foul odor. They also found traces of blood that did not match Sierra's DNA. Also found within the barn was rope, tape, zip ties, handcuffs, several guns, and plenty of ammunition. Later that day, as the Worley property continued to be inspected, the search for Sierra continued. Around 6 p.m., a volunteer who'd been searching for Sierra came across what appeared to be a freshly dug grave. The police came over and had asked us for some identifying marks on Sierra. And obviously we were scared about that. They had said they had a area that they were searching with fresh dirt. I knew at that moment that they had found something and it was just really heart-wrenching to wait. After six hours of removing dirt from the area, police recovered Sierra's body. The call came in and I just remember they had called Sierra's dad and they had said that they were able to identify that they had found her. 
and her dad got off the phone and everybody just fell apart. It was the most um, horrendous sound. <laughs> People crying and moaning and just in complete shock and despair. It became all too clear that Sierra had experienced a horrific nightmare before she died. She had been bound and hogtied with both of her wrists handcuffed behind her back and bound to her ankles. She had been gagged and discarded as though she was meaningless. Sierra's bright and promising future had been ripped away from her, and the beauty she brought into the world had been stolen from her loved ones. All of the amazing things she might have accomplished in her life, the places she may have traveled, the family she may have had, was lost forever. really just absolutely devastating to think that this could happen to this innocent person who had so much to give, so much to offer, and that's how she was taken. It was devastating. My life was ripped away from me and my family. I mean, to see my sister and how she was totally broken and to see my parents how broken they were. It was just the most difficult thing I've ever experienced. On July 27th, James Worley was officially charged with the abduction and murder of Sierra Joggin. He was charged with a total of 19 counts in all, listed as follows. Two counts of aggravated murder, two counts of murder, two counts of abduction, two counts of felonious assault, two counts of having weapons under disability, two counts of aggravated robbery, four counts of kidnapping, one count of gross abuse of a corpse, one count of possessing criminal tools, and one count of tampering with evidence. A mere two days after he was charged, the family and friends of Sierra Joggin laid her to rest. A beautiful, fun-loving, family-oriented young woman that no one could believe was gone. James Worley had murdered Sierra and scarred an entire community, stealing a piece of the innocence everyone had once felt about growing up and raising their children there. Just to know that somebody who lived, you know, miles down the road from the high school and the middle school and lives miles down the road from where 
we all grew up and he has this torture area in his barn that's really scary it was a total shock for our community for our family but for the community because nobody would have known and that's shocking to me I mean, that moment changed me, changed my family, changed our community because you never look at your neighbors. You never look at anything the same. Everything now appears differently. Out in Evergreen, Matamora, everybody has a barn. And I would say more than half of them are old barns that are barely hanging on and you wouldn't think anything of it but now you do now you wonder what is in all of these places nearly two long years after the murder the trial of James Worley was finally set to begin on March 12, 2018. On the first day of the trial, Sierra's mother and her boyfriend Josh both testified. Sierra's mom told the jury about how Sierra was a wonderful, vibrant, and passionate young lady who was driven and focused and so smart. She talked about how her daughter had a 3.8 GPA and had a job, that she belonged to several clubs and organizations including the Society for Human Resources Management. Family was very important to her, and she never missed events in her nieces and nephews' lives. While most university students would be off partying, Sierra was planning family nights and being responsible. Sheila also testified that the night Sierra went missing, she noticed her bedroom light wasn't on, but she didn't think much about it until Josh called saying he couldn't reach her. When she went to look, Sierra wasn't in her bedroom, so Sheila immediately called the police. I did notice that her light wasn't on, um, which now strikes me as very odd, but I thought, well, you know, she might have been tired from the bike ride. I didn't know if she had to get up early and she was going to go work out or if she had to work early. But some of the most heartbreaking testimony came from Josh Kolosinski, Sierra's boyfriend. He talked about how he met Sierra through his best friend Nick, who was also Sierra's cousin. At the tender age of seven years old, the three became affectionately known as the Three Amigos, because they spent all their time together and were inseparable. He said, Some dream of angels, but I held one. It was apparent to everyone in the courtroom that this young man was completely devastated and heartbroken over the loss of the love of his life. He had even recently given her a promise ring, and they planned to get married one day. I would like for you to describe your activities on July 19, 2016. I was at work, and was on my way home, and me and my friend Nick were going to work on a table that we were building. 
in my garage. And uh, I got home, and Nick wasn't there yet, so I figured I'd start on the table. I was there working on the table, and she showed up. And did she arrive on bicycle? Yeah. How far is it between your your residence and where Sierra lives? Around six miles, give or take. Uh, I continued working on the table. She showed up, and I continued working on the table, and she left, and I followed her. On your motorcycle? Yes. We got a few miles down the road, and she told me that, you know, she was yelling at me that she didn't need me by her side, and that, and that she was fine, and we were at a corner, and I gave her a kiss and said bye. And when you split, where did you go? I went back home. And your knowledge was, did Sierra continue on to the east? Yes. Sheila would be Sierra's mother? Yes. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Later, there was some expert testimony. A cell phone expert testified that he examined both Sierra and James Worley's phones. These phones were in the general area of each other. Remember, the spreadsheets don't tell me exactly where the phone is. It, it's in these general areas. Um, so they, these phones on different networks were in the same general area at the same general time. The jury spent much of the first day hearing right from James Worley in his own words, as hours of his interrogation was played in the courtroom. In one of his initial interviews with police, James told police the story about how his motorcycle had broken down and how he had to alternate from pushing his bike and riding his bike to get home. After police confronted him with the fact that he was seen on video surveillance at a nearby elementary school, he said he went looking for his helmet, which he lost. He repeatedly denied any involvement in Sierra's death, saying, how do you kidnap or take someone on a motorbike? He was questioned about the items on his property and told police he had planned to start up an amateur pornography studio in one of his barns. And the other things were just girlfriend stuff. On the second day of the trial, crime scene investigators testified. They talked about the state of Sierra's body when it was discovered, along with other evidence that was collected at the scene. What did you find as to this air mattress that was presumptive positive for blood? On the sample collected from the air mattress, I obtained a mixture. Uh, Sierra Jogram was included as a major contributor 
uh, and the statistic associated with that was rarer than one in one trillion. And James Worley was excluded as the major contributor. One CSI agent even got choked up and fought back tears as she described to the jury recovering Sierra's body. This is the point where we're, re we're removing layer by layer of dirt um, from her body, from the grave. Um, you can see that she's taped up. Um, she has a yellow gag in her mouth. It's secured to her um, with a shoelace. And she's got straw in her hair. She's got a brassiere, like a lace color brassiere, handcuffs. The trial picked up on the following week, on Tuesday, March 20th, where more expert testimony was presented regarding fingerprint and tire evidence. This also included Deputy Lucas County Coroner, Dr. Cynthia Beiser. The judge warned members of the Joggin family and friends in the courtroom that the graphic description that they were about to hear would be disturbing. The coroner discussed the injuries to Sierra, which included a laceration to her forehead and a hairline fracture inside the back of her skull. But that wasn't what killed Sierra. The manner of death was homicide, and the cause of death was asphyxiation. Due to her inability to breathe because of a foreign object that had been shoved in her mouth with such force that it broke one of her teeth. The autopsy examination also concluded that Sierra had not been sexually assaulted. An agent from the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation and Identification also testified that the tire impressions lifted from where Sierra was abducted showed the same tread impressions and tire sizes as the Starfire tires on Worley's Dodge pickup truck. The prosecution rested its case on Wednesday, March 21st, after its final bombshell witness, Robin Gardner. Robin, who is now 54 years old, would get her day in court to tell the jury about the day so many years ago when the exact same man had attacked her in nearly the same manner, but fortunately for her, with much different results. I was in the truck at that time and he was standing on the street and he put handcuffs on my right wrist and I didn't want him to get both hands behind my back so I held onto the steering wheel with my left hand and we fought and fought to get he wanted to get both hands behind my back, and I fought and fought and fought. So I finally saw a person coming eastbound. I could see them through the car window, and I was struggling as much as I could so that he could see that I was in distress. Well, he let go of me. So what happened then? And then the door closed on the passenger side, and I slid across the seat, and the driver's side door was still open, and I ran out into the street. What injury did you sustain? When I got to the hospital, they x-rayed everything, and I had a skull fracture and a concussion. And prior to July 4th of 1990, had you ever met the defendant, James Worley? No. 
No testimony was taken the following day. Thursday, March 22nd. So the defense had their chance to present their case on Friday, March 23rd. Worley's defense attorney called two of his friends to testify. They said they would ride motorcycles with Worley and that his bike would often break down. Once he got the motorcycle started and he was driving down the road, it wouldn't stall. Is that accurate? It always stalled when he stopped? Basically, when he slowed down, sometimes it would stop. Okay. And when, when it would stall, how long would it be stalled for? Usually until he gave it another kick start. They talked about his penchant for smoking marijuana and watching pornography, and that James wanted to open his own porno studio. He mentioned something about building a little studio in the back corner of it or something. It was just, just you know, just talk. It was talk. Right. I, I didn't really pay that much attention to it. When you were in the barn, did you ever smoke marijuana with Mr. Willie? Sure. How often would you smoke marijuana? Every time I went over there. Every time you went over? Yes, sir. The lead investigator on the case testified that the pornographic websites Worley visited portrayed women gagged and bound or hog-tied, some with ball gags in their mouth. He said some of the videos also portrayed women being raped or strangled. The defense rested their case that same day. The third week of the trial began first thing on Monday, March 22, 2018, with closing arguments. They were presented for both sides, and then the case was turned over to the jury to decide the fate of James Worley. Sierra's family, along with many others, suspected that James Worley hadn't waited 26 years between Robin and Sierra's attack, and that there had to be others. We totally believe that he has done this before. We were hoping that there would be more evidence. My sister and the prosecutor had talked about a plea deal, and the plea deal was that if he was able to give information on other people who have been missing or other murders, then we would take the death penalty off the case, and he wouldn't. We're dealing with somebody who absolutely believes everything he thinks. He thinks that he is smarter than all of us, and he still tries to claim his innocence in this case. So, unfortunately, I don't believe that he'll ever give up any information. While it only took seven hours for the jury to deliberate, the verdict was returned on Tuesday, March 27, 2018. He was found guilty on all 19 counts. In the state of Ohio, if a defendant is found guilty at a trial of a capital offense, the jury will meet again at a later date and hear more testimony from both the state and the defense. This is called the penalty phase, where the jury must decide whether to fashion a sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole or the death penalty. Testimony can be taken from both sides during this hearing. In the Ohio court system, the jury can make a sentencing recommendation to the judge, but it's ultimately up to the judge to fashion a sentence that he or she deems adequate. The penalty phase in James Worley's trial began on April 3, 
Testimony got underway, but the state elected not to call any witnesses as they felt very strongly about their case. The defense, on the other hand, had a number of witnesses to call, including a forensic psychologist who had interviewed James Worley. Worley's friends had testified to him being a weird guy who watched a lot of pornography and had several failed businesses. A mitigation specialist named Gary Erickson also testified to being hired to review Worley's birth certificate, education records, probation records, and medical records. He spent hours interviewing people who knew Worley, including his sister, Cynthia Barlow. A tape-recorded conversation with Cynthia was played in the court. Cynthia was reluctant to testify in person because of her job working for the Los Angeles Police Department. The conversation included stories of James as a youngster, with her even calling James mild-mannered. In fact, she even described him as being social and gentle towards their family. When talking about their home life, she did, however, admit that her father had been abusive towards their mother growing up. She was able to describe a few specific incidences of violence between her parents, and at one time in particular when their father had chased their mother around the house with a butcher's knife while the children watched. She tried to recall, thinking that perhaps the police may have been called there before. When Cynthia was told about James's crime, she expressed complete shock that he could ever do such a thing. It was mentioned that James previously attacked Robin Gardner in the same manner, to which Cynthia replied that James had told her that in order to avoid a hit-and-run, he tried to hold her until the police arrived. The tape-recorded conversation with Cynthia also revealed that James had previously been suspected of killing a prostitute, but because a body was never found, charges were never issued. Most of our contacts obviously have been over the phone because I would call to talk to Mom and Tim and Mark telephonically because I live in California. That's right. It's a long so I'm not there. So I've tried to call at least once a week. Sometimes it was only every couple of weeks, but depending on when I can get a hold of them. But he mentioned her name and. Um, I know, I think I know who you're talking about. But the authorities suspected your brother of killing her. Mm hmm When I discovered that Warby Parker offers prescription glasses starting at $95, I was shocked and had to check them out. Not only did they have plenty of styles to choose from, the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, and their home try-on program allows you to order five pairs of glasses shipped directly to your door, so you can decide which pair suits you best. Not only that, you get five days to decide before sending the rest back using a free prepaid return shipping label and no obligation to purchase. We put it to a family vote, and after I tried on all five pairs, the Roosevelt frames ended up winning, and I love them. Something I also really value about Warby Parker, every pair of glasses purchased means that another pair is distributed to a person in need. So head over to warbyparker.com madness to order your free home try-on today. And make sure to download the Warby Parker app from the iTunes App Store. The home try-on companion feature allows you to take pictures of yourself wearing all the frames and share it with your friends and family. 
so they can help you pick the winning frame they think suits you best. So go to Warby, W-A-R-B-Y, Parker.com slash madness today. Finally, Dr. John Michael Fabian, a forensic clinical psychologist, testified about James Worley after having evaluated him. He claimed that Worley suffered from a number of mental health issues. The doctor said that Worley walked in on his stepfather, raping his sister on two separate occasions, although she had never made or supported any such claim. The doctor also diagnosed James with sexual sadism, fetishistic, and other personality disorders, along with paranoid, antisocial, narcissistic, and obsessive-compulsive traits. He testified that he believed that Worley got sexual gratification from Sierra receiving physical and emotional pain. He further went on to state that he questioned Worley about a sexual relationship with his own mother, which he vehemently denied. Because Worley had power of attorney over his mother's finances, James frequently dipped into her monthly social security checks to pursue porn websites. Other information regarding their relationship was never disclosed. After all the testimony was taken on record, the jury had to deliberate once again. This time, they would be deciding whether to recommend that James himself would live his life out in prison or die. The jury came back from deliberations with a recommendation of the death penalty. We, the jury, unanimously agree the aggravating circumstances committed by the defendant outweigh the mitigating factors beyond a reasonable doubt and hereby unanimously find the defendant should be sentenced to death. Now, it was time for the judge to decide. Unfortunately, this was not the last step for Sierra's family. There would still be the actual sentencing phase itself. On April 18th, Sierra's family and friends gathered one last time at the courthouse. The day started with victim impact statements, and the family spent the next 45 minutes talking about how wonderful Sierra was. Sierra's mom, Sheila, talked about missing her daughter and how Sierra's younger brother's birthday was on July 21st, and how he had to spend his birthday at home while his family was out searching for his sister. His birthday will always be tainted by this heartbreaking memory. Aunt Tara explaining to the judge how this crime had affected them and continues to affect their lives. Your Honor, my name is Tara Ice, and I am Sierra's aunt. Not only did he take Sierra away from us, but he took away our family as we knew it. I have to watch the pain in my sister's eyes and the heartbreak of losing her firstborn child. I have to watch my niece not be able to have sleepovers because of her fear of being away from home. I have to watch the pain and despair in my parents as they struggle to understand 
how this could happen in the town they both grew up in and felt safe in. I have to try to explain to my young daughters why Sierra won't be coming home and that the boogeyman really does exist. James would also have the chance to address the court before the judge would issue his final sentence. We had a Dr. Fabian do an assessment on me. I took some pretty, pretty tough tests. If you haven't ever taken these tests, you have no idea what you're up against. I mean, from running a pencil on a maze, to putting different pieces of a puzzle together to make a shape, the defense attorney requested that the judge only sentence his client to life in prison because he was already 59 years old and coupled with his mental illness felt it was a fair sentence. It was then that James Worley spent nearly 45 minutes telling the court that he believed someone else had kidnapped Sierra and that he was being framed. Tara recalls being interested to hear what James Worley had to say. My sister, my mom, and I have been going to every hearing on the case. So prior to court starting, we had seen him in the courtroom probably about once a month. So we were able to handle our emotions and how we were feeling being in the same room with him by the time the trial came. When he decided that he was going to make a statement, I think for myself, I was interested to hear what he could possibly say. And so we sat and we listened for a portion of time while he rambled on and said the most inconsistent things. And it was when He had made mention to the fact that he doesn't know why Sierra wasn't sexually assaulted because she was beautiful, is when we all stood up, and my entire family and uh, Josh's family walked out. Even after Sierra's entire family stood up and left the courtroom, James Worley continued to rattle on. He further added that questions were still unanswered about some of the DNA that was found and remarked that the DNA could one day prove his innocence. It was the most sickening feeling to have him turn around and make eye contact and tell lies out of his mouth as if he truly believed him. It it was the most perfect example of a narcissistic person who absolutely believes in his his lies that he's made. Judge Jeffrey Robinson sentenced James Worley to the death penalty in the slain of Sierra Joggin. In his final comment, Judge Robinson stated, Mr. Worley, if I thought there was a snowball's chance in hell that you were innocent, you would be looking at life. It really didn't matter if he had life in prison or the death sentence. Because 
the fact that he was never going to be out on the streets again is all that really matters. I think that when we heard the announcement, it was bittersweet. There's that feeling of everybody saw through the lies that he was trying to tell, and they saw exactly what had happened, and that this monster will never walk the streets again. On the other hand, it was, it didn't feel good. It didn't feel good to know that somebody else's life is being taken. It didn't make it feel any better to us because it didn't bring back C. It didn't make things any better with our grieving process. So it was it it was a very odd feeling at that moment to know that they saw exactly what happened and they all agreed without a question that he did this and that he did deserves to die for it. But it didn't make us feel any better. Josh and his family have found strength by starting an organization called Keeping Our Girls Safe, a group that organizes free self-defense classes. Sierra's family have begun a movement to pass a bill called Sierra's Law, which would create a violent offender registry. We have Senator Randy Gardner, who has been working with us from the beginning. We originally started out with a violent offender registry that would somewhat mimic the sexual offender registry. We had a lot of opposition when we were at the Senate. And so Randy, Senator Gardner, has worked very hard to revise this bill to make everyone happy. He has done a lot of research and a lot of work with the reentry programs. Where we're at right now is that Sierra's Law would be a violent offender database. And with that, it would be available to federal, state, and local law enforcement. But it wouldn't be a public record. It wouldn't be something that you could look up online like the sexual offender registry. We have aggravated murder, we have murder, voluntary manslaughter, kidnapping, and abduction. So those are the five offenses that would be under Sierra's law. The bill currently has the support of Ohio Senators Randy Gardner and Cliff Height. James Worley is currently awaiting execution which has been scheduled for June 3rd, 2019. Although James Worley has scarred the community of Metamora and the lives of Sierra's family forever, he did not 
break them. In order to keep Sierra alive in their hearts, they have decided not to live in despair, but to live life to its fullest. Prior to this event, we've always been very close. I have always been very close with my sister and my brother, and all of our kids have been close. And the biggest worry always is that when something this tragic happens, are we ever going to be the same? Is this going to break us? And I can honestly say that our family is as close and as connected and as bonded as we were before. And we know that Sierra would not want us to live in absolute despair and that we, she would want us to turn around and do good and to continue to move forward because there is no moving on from what happened. It is in our hearts and on our heads every day. But we do need to move forward. And as a family, we do that together. And we do that by making memories and remembering our memories of C and trying to honor her by still living our life to the fullest because that's how she lived. And that's what we've learned from her is you have to just live your life and enjoy every moment because you just don't know. In an instant, Sierra's family experienced the unimaginable horror that human beings are capable of. They also witnessed the incredible amount of compassion and love that exists in the world. Tara expressed how grateful they were to their local police and community. From start to finish, they have been on top of things and just nothing but professional and compassionate. The community support, I mean, the people coming out and just helping in any way and you know, Sierra's favorite color was purple and, you know, the purple ribbons around mailboxes and trees and the the people that come to her, um, to where she's buried and leave things, leave um, different notes or flowers or even at the location that she was um, taken or the location she was buried, people are constantly leaving things there and it's just really amazing to know that we thought Sierra was amazing. I'd like to say a special thank you to Sierra's aunt, Tara Ice, and the rest of her family for allowing us the opportunity to tell Sierra's story and to help keep her memory alive. Sierra's family have started a nonprofit organization called Justice for Sierra for the purpose of raising awareness for youth on how to keep safe and educating Ohio 
on Sierra's Law. If you'd like to make a donation, you can go to sierraslaw.com. They also have a Facebook page, and you can find a link in our show notes. As mentioned, Josh and his family have also started an organization called Keeping Our Girls Safe. Its mission is to create a community where violence against women no longer exists. Through fundraising efforts, they provide self-defense classes along with awareness and educational programs for women. To make a donation or to find out more, you can go to kogsafe.com. It's been a while since we've thanked our Patreon supporters, and from Beck and I, we really want to thank you for helping keep this podcast going. And we would like to thank the following new Patreon supporters. Jay, Tracy, Mary G, Mike from the Murder in My Family podcast, Timothy S, Bonnie from Whining About Crime podcast, Julie, Aaron G, Michelle T, Megan Q, Rosita H, Mary F, Veronica C, Cassie S, Tanya T, Pernella from True Crime Sweden, Mandy J, Jessa and Nick from Getting Off Podcast, Julia W, Nan S, Janine P, Taylor Ray F, Nikki from Strictly Homicide Podcast, August, Molly M, and Scott and Forrest from Astonishing Legends. And now I would like to introduce two podcasts. Strictly Homicide. I'm Nikki T, the host of Strictly Homicide, a narrative true crime podcast that covers the lesser known cases that have happened in the natural state. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all major podcast apps. Visit strictlyhomicide.com or find us on social media by searching Strictly Homicide Podcasts. Until then, stay safe, especially you, Arkansas. And Southern Fried True Crime. Hey there, this is Erica Kelly, host of the podcast Southern Fried True Crime. Each week, I take a look at a different Southern crime. And like any good gossip, I'm interested in anyone or anything. I cover contemporary and historical cases, and I love listener suggestions. Come join me as I explore the dark underbelly of the Deep South. I'm a one-woman show in a narrative format. Kind of like sitting by the fire and listening to a story. So pull up a chair and subscribe if you're interested. I'd love to have you. You can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and just about any podcast platform. Just search for Southern Fried True Crime. Until then, y'all take care. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track Feel the Madness is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au 
slash G-E. Someone's standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause